I hope that you'll turn with me in a Bible to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. And our focus this morning will be on verses 5 to 14. Hebrews 1, verses 5 to 14. We saw last week in the first four verses that the author who remains anonymous writes to these persecuted, suffering, and discouraged Christians to remind them of what it's all about. Even better, who it's all about. And it's all about Jesus. And he shows them that what Jesus has set in motion, what he brings because of who he is, can never be undone or reversed or ultimately forgotten. It's all about him. And that's exactly what we need to hear during this Advent season as well. No matter what discouragement we may be facing, we need to be reminded it's all about him. But I would draw your attention to verse 4. Hebrews 1, verse 4, where he writes, So he, that is Christ, the Son of God, became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. He's received a superior name to angels. And what follows in verses 5 to 14 is an airtight argument that Jesus is superior to angels. He is greater than angels. Angels are great, but he is greater still. Now, when we look at this, that may seem like an odd turn in the argument. Why bring up angels now? Well, what I hope to show you that is that unless we understand what he teaches about angels and the superiority of Christ over the angels, we will not understand what Christmas is about. And unless we understand what Christmas is about, we will not have peace in our hearts or otherwise. So this is incredibly relevant for us today and during this season. However odd it may appear at first glance. But the reason it seems odd to us is that we don't really know what to do with angels. On the one hand, angels are prolific this time of year. Just look around. We see angels in decorations, in nativity scenes. They're all over the place. And we're constantly singing about them in the carols that we sing in this time of year, are we not? They're everywhere. And for good reason. It's impossible to tell the Christmas story without talking about angels. Just think about it. It's an angel named Gabriel who shows up to the Virgin Mary and tells her she's going to be with child, that she's going to give birth to the Messiah, the Christ. And it's an angel who shows up to Joseph to tell him, even though your fiance is pregnant, trust me, she hasn't cheated on you. God wants you to marry her. 
And it's a choir of angels, a host, an army of angels that shows up to the shepherds, keeping watch over their flock by night to announce glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Today in the city of David, a Savior has been born to you, Christ the Lord. And they go and check it out. And it's an angel who comes to Joseph in a dream to tell him, you've got to leave, you've got to go to Egypt to escape the danger of King Herod. Angels are all over the Christmas story. You can't tell the Christmas story without them. So that's true on one hand. On the other hand, typically our decorations of angels come across as something like a fairy godmother. Uh, They come across as as pretty harmless. What do we do with this? I, I, I mean, it's based on some artist's rendition. It's based on human imagination. A lot of it goes back to the medieval period. What do we do with them? They're everywhere. We sing about them. But what are they? And so we need to take some time this morning to think about who angels are and what they do. Otherwise, the argument of Hebrews 1 is not going to make any sense to us. So we're going to get to the reading in a few moments, but we need to take some time to understand what God's Word reveals about angels. And again, your understanding of Christmas hinges on this. And the peace that you can know because of what God did at Christmas and what He continues to do now hinges on this. And if you're somebody that says, well, I just don't really care about angels. I'm happy to just sing about them. I'm happy to decorate my house with them or see them lit up. Well, hear me. You owe it to yourself to at least hear what God's Word says about angels. And what does His Word tell us about angels? First, they are created beings. They are created beings. They are not eternal. They are not divine. They are created beings. And as created beings... They have wills. They can make decisions. And as a result, they can sin. And at some undisclosed time, some of them rebelled against God, led by Satan. And they continue to be in opposition and in rebellion against God. And one day, they will be finally judged for their rebellion. But for those who remained obedient, they do God's bidding. They're created beings. And they exist in vast numbers. We don't know exactly how many, but we know that when the Apostle John has his vision of heaven in Revelation chapter 4, he sees myriads of myriads, thousands upon thousands of angels. Millions, in other words. Millions a great heavenly host, an army of angels. When Jesus is with his disciples, when he's being arrested in the garden and Peter lops off the ear of 
one of those who is trying to arrest Jesus, Jesus says, don't you know that if I wanted to, I could summon 12 legions of angels to come to my defense? If that's what I wanted to do, I could. And that's 72,000 angels, by the way. A Roman legion being 6,000 men at full strength. Twelve legions could come to his defense if that's what he chose to do. They exist in vast numbers. They're also usually invisible to our eyes. Invisible to our eyes. And you see a few examples of this. For example, in Numbers chapter 22, we have Balaam. And Balaam has been employed by a rival king to pronounce curses upon God's people. And as he's on his way, an angel blocks his path. And an angel even leads his donkey to rebuke him. And while he's wailing on his donkey to try to get him to go, he's oblivious to the fact that there's an angel standing in his way with a sword. And it's not until the Lord opened Balaam's eyes. This is Numbers 22, verse 31. The Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn. So he bowed low and fell face down. His eyes have to be opened for him to see this angel. It doesn't come naturally. Also in 2 Kings 6, Elisha, the prophet, is under attack. He's surrounded, and his servant says, we're outnumbered, they're going to come kill us. And he tells his servant, trust me, those who are on our side far outnumber those who are against us. And Elisha prays for his servant to have his eyes open, to see. And when he has his eyes open, he sees chariots of fire all around them, there to protect them. But again, their eyes have to be opened. Because usually, when they show up, they show up in human form. They show up to Abraham in Genesis 18 as, as men. Sometimes they show up as winged creatures. You see this in Isaiah 6, when he has his vision of the Lord on his throne. And there are creatures with six wings flying about the throne. You see it in Exodus 25 in the Ark of the Covenant. There are two angels in gold on top with their wings outstretched. So they can show up in a variety of forms. In a variety of forms. And they have superhuman power. Powers that transcend anything that we could possibly do. For example... In 2 Kings chapter 19, we're told that an army of angels arrives and kills at least 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. 185,000 Assyrian soldiers, thereby rescuing God's people. Superhuman powers. You've got Acts chapter 12 where Peter's in prison. And in the middle of the night, an angel shows up, comes to him, and says, get up. First he nudges him, hits him, to wake him up. Get your sandals on, get your clothes on, we're, we're out of here. 
His chains fall off, and the angel leads him past armed guard after armed guard, past locked door after locked door. This is not something that we're capable of doing. So angels have immense power and ability. These are awesome creatures. Awesome creatures. Great and mighty. That's who they are. What do they do? First, they worship God, the obedient ones. They worship God. In every scene of heaven, whether it's Isaiah 6 and Ezekiel and Revelation 4 and 5, what are they doing? They're praising God, continually praising God, glorifying Him, honoring Him, showing that He's worthy to be worshipped. That's what they're doing right now. And they communicate God's messages. You'll notice sometimes in the Old Testament, it'll say the Lord said, and then sometimes it'll say the angel said. And it's because God used an angel in, in various situations to communicate for himself. So the angel speaks in first person. This is what I say. Not third person. Not he, God says. This is what I say. Delivering God's messages. And again, just think of the Christmas story. To Mary, to Joseph, to Zechariah about John the Baptist, to the shepherds. Communicating God's message with accuracy and dependability. And they serve God's people. They rejoice when someone comes to faith in Christ. There is singing in heaven when a sinner repents and turns to Christ for salvation. They protect God's people. Do you realize angels are protecting you? Whether you see them or, not, or don't see them. Whether you're aware of them or not. Whether you see them as a fairy godmother or as a mighty warrior. They're protecting God's people. They serve God's people. In Psalm 34, verse 7, it says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. Now, I hope you've noticed something here to this point. And that is, angels are fearsome beings. They typically have a sword in their hands. And I don't know about you, but I can't remember the last time I saw a decoration of an angel with a sword in his or her hand, right? Because that's not how we imagine them. And generally, when people encounter an angel, they think they're going to die. They fall down in fear and terror. And the first words that the angel needs to utter, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. You're not going to die. I bring good news. But these are warriors. And I'm thankful for that. I don't know about you, but I need a warrior to protect me given the threats that exist out there. I don't need a fairy godmother. I don't need someone to grant me three wishes. I need a warrior with a sword in his hand. And praise God, that's what angels are to God's people. They serve God's people. And then one final purpose is that in the end, when the Lord Jesus returns bodily, angels will gather God's people. 
We read in Matthew chapter 24, for example, that they will sound the trumpet and they will go forth and they will gather God's elect from all over the earth. And we're told <coughs> in Matthew 13 about the, in the parable of the weeds, the parable of the weeds. <coughs> and they're separating the wheat from the chaff. They separate the wheat from the chaff. They will gather God's people and they will call out those who have not feared the Lord, who do not tremble at his word, and those who say, this is all mythology. I don't believe any of that. They will gather God's people in the end and gather them to the Lord Jesus to receive their inheritance. So after all that, do you see how great and mighty and awesome angels are? Wow, if, if you're not astounded by this, you, you haven't understood it. Look at what they're capable of doing. Think of what they're doing right now. Think of the fact that they're in our midst, even when we don't see them. And then consider, again, Hebrews 1 verse 4, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. They're great. Jesus is greater still. Do you see how all of this is aimed at building up the greatness of Jesus? If angels are that great and awesome, how great is Jesus? How awesome is he? And then we need to ask the question, why would anyone be tempted to give undue recognition to angels? Well, think again about the audience, the original audience of the letter to the Hebrews. These are persecuted Christians. These are people who have been kicked out of the synagogue. These are people who are subject to doing time in prison. These are people who have had their property confiscated. These are people who have been ostracized and, and kicked out and overlooked. And some of them may be facing death itself, shedding their own blood for the cause of Christ. Now, why would they be tempted to give undue recognition to angels for this reason. Those who are persecuting them would be happy and willing to acknowledge Jesus as an angel. Sure, he's a great prophet. Sure, we'll grant that he has superhuman powers. Sure, we'll grant that he's a, a hero. Sure, if you can just tone it down a bit with the Jesus is God stuff. We'll, we'll gladly welcome you back into the fold if you'll just say Jesus is, is like an angel, okay? He, he's a mighty being, a great moral teacher. But don't say he's God. Don't say he's Lord. And, and you see how these Christians could not outright deny Christ, but you see what they would stand to gain if they would just lower their Christology a little bit. Take it, take it down a notch. And the same temptation faces you and me. I, I'm, I'm guessing you're not tempted to worship angels, but we're all tempted to see Jesus as less than he really is. And I know that because we're all tempted to render obedience to him that's less worthy 
than he's worthy to receive. All of us. We want to give Jesus this much, but not all of it. We want to go this far, but not that far. We'll claim to be a Christian, but we don't want to be left out by the crowd. We don't want to be alone. Right? That's the temptation. And this is where we need the argument, Jesus is greater. He's greater still. And if you will trust that he's greater still, if you will give him the worship and the obedience that he alone is due, you will know more peace in your heart. And you'll know what Christmas is all about. So let's turn together. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits, and his servants flames of fire. But about the Son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? So the writer employs seven different Old Testament references here. Seven different Old Testament references. And he continues to ask this rhetorical question. Did God ever say that to an angel? Did God ever say this to an angel? And of course the answer is no, never. No, never. He never said that to an angel. So what is the greatness of Jesus that surpasses angels itself? The greatness that we must come to grips with and understand if we're to understand Christmas and have peace in our hearts. Notice that his name is greater. His name. And when we say name, we don't just mean what he's called by. We mean his identity, his title, his reputation, who he is, is greater. And his title is son, as you see in verse 5. You are my son. Today I've become your father. This is a citation from Psalm 2. You are my son. Do you ever say that to an angel? No. Now, what does it mean that today? Does that mean that there was a time when Jesus didn't exist or there was a time when he wasn't the son? No. He's always been the son. He's always been eternal. But now, in these last days, he is proven to be God's son. He is declared to be 
God's Son. Primarily by virtue of the fact that he has triumphed over death itself. He has received his inheritance. He has proven that he has the right to judge me and to judge you. Because God never said to me, you are my son today, I have become your father. I'm in rebellion against him. I've sinned against him. I've thought things I should not have thought. I've said things I should not have said. I've left undone things I should have done. I've left unsaid things I should have said. That's you, that's me. But praise God, the spotlight is on his son. Behold, this is my son. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. That's the voice from heaven. His name is greater. His glory is also greater. Following the citation from 2 Samuel 7, verse 14, saying that he will be his father, he will be a son, God brings his firstborn into the world, and he says, let all God's angels worship him. And speaking of the angels, he says he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. The angels have a glory, but it's a lesser glory. They have a glory that is a reflected glory. They reflect the, the greatness of God. The Son possesses his own glory. And his glory is that of the King of heaven, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Don't give that kind of loyalty to anyone else in this world. He is the ruler. He is the king. And while, yes, he came to serve, to give his life as a ransom for sinners, to purchase our redemption, that was for a season. His nature is to be king, to rule, to be the Christ, the anointed one. He was born king. Angels never receive that. Their job is to be servants. They're always servants. Their job is to do what God tells them to do. But the Son is himself God. And then third, his role is greater. His role is greater. But about the Son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. The Lord Jesus embodies righteousness. If you want to know how we're supposed to live, if you want to know what God expects from us, you've got to get to know Jesus. You won't get to know that by watching the news or coming up with what you think a good life is. You've got to get to know Jesus. He shows us what righteousness is. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. His role, his role, he is to be worshipped as God. We can pray to him, we can talk to him, we can turn to him no matter where we are, no matter what we're facing. He's worthy. His glory is greater, his role is greater. And then look at his nature in verses 10 to 12. There's this comparison between the created world, the heavens, the work of God's hands, the foundations of the earth. These things will perish, but he remains. He is permanent. He is eternal. 
He shares in God's eternal nature. His essence, who he is, is eternal. And and look around you and, and think about how quickly this world is changing. And, and we're reminded of every Christmas, we think back to years gone by, our kids are growing up. This world is changing fast. We're aging fast. But he is eternal. So if you need something that's going to last, and we all do, if you're looking for an anchor for your soul that is firm and steadfast, you must be united to Christ. He is eternal. He will last. And you can have eternal life in him so that when this body wastes away, this world wastes away, you can still have life in him. And then his triumph is greater. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Psalm 110. Did he ever say that to an angel? No, of course not. Because angels haven't triumphed over sin and death. And and this shows us another temptation that we face. We're, We're tempted to render less honor to Jesus than he deserves. But we're also tempted to see the spectacular at Christmas, to see the choir of angels in the heavens, to see the lights and the beauty of the season, and to think that that's ultimately what it's about. Instead of hearing what the angels are saying, don't look at us. Go to the manger. Go to the animal trough if you want to see what God has done. If you want to see God and sinners reconciled. If you want to know why he came to give us second birth, born that we no more might die. You've got to look in the manger. You've got to see what God is willing to do. Because in our overblown, inflated sense of ourselves, we're happy to be rescued by an angel. But to say that baby is my only hope and salvation, that what I need is for God to take on human flesh, for God to shed his blood in my place. Well, that requires admitting that we're sinners and we're lost. We might fancy that we, we deserve angels to pluck us out. No. Blood must be shed for us to be reconciled to God. And when you come to grips with that and you see his triumph, he's triumphed over death itself for you and for me, and you can share in his triumph. And his angels can serve you and protect you. And you'll know peace. You can lay your head down at night knowing that he is God. You can be still and know that he is God. You can know that he is our refuge and strength. He is our ever-present help in times of trouble. And even though the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, still he is God. 
He is in control. His angels are still doing his bidding. And Jesus is still at his right hand. Do you have that peace in your heart today? Just think about those sleepy shepherds. After the angels have proclaimed the birth of Christ, when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. Don't stand around gawking. Don't stand around looking for something extraordinary or spectacular to happen. Don't sit around waiting for an epiphany. Go see what God has done. Go to Bethlehem. See the baby lying in a manger. See God in human flesh. Humble and lowly. Mercy mild. And receive the gift for a wretch like you and a wretch like me. And rejoice and know that as you rejoice and as you receive the gift, the angels are praising God, whether we hear the sound of the music or not. They're rejoicing. Yes, she gets it. Yes, she knows the power of his grace and how amazing it is. Yes, he's come home, finally. We've been waiting. May you know that peace. May heaven rejoice today because you have come home. Because you know why we're about to gather around this table and partake of this meal and the gift that it symbolizes. May you know that peace as we go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you that your word shines a light on subjects and issues and problems that we would never even think to address. And we thank you that your word speaks so clearly into our present lives, our present moment. And we ask that if there is any way in which we have wondered today or this past week, if, if there is anything in us that is displeasing to you, and we know there is, we pray that you would search us and know us that you would show us that thing, whatever it is. And that as we approach this table, we would trust in the blood of Jesus to atone for that sin. We pray that you would use this time shared together and in communion with you to draw us closer to yourself. May we enjoy fellowship true fellowship with one another and with you around this table. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.